Hello and welcome to Mad Hatter's Tea Party. This is Wa'ad Hatta, and today I'm interviewing not one, but two people. We're talking to Richard Hoagland about his uh, current show in Dubai, opening on the 28th of October and until the 4th of December at Cousteau Gallery, and the show is called Desert Octave. And after an interview with him, we're going to have a chance to also ask creator Kamiar Maliki a, f- a couple of questions about the show and the setup, as is the third time they've worked together and it's the first time they've done it in Dubai. So, hello, Richard. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, so, to start off, um, your your work is, at least the work you have in Dubai right now, is um, drawings and paintings, I guess mixed media in sort of way, but mainly drawing painting on linen. That's correct, yes. And this is a deviation from your larger overall work of... Um, I want to say sea pictures, mm-hmm. correct? But the show is called Desert Octave. That's right. So is this an actual extension of, of, of that larger body of work, or is it different, or how do you, how, how should we see it? Okay. Well, sea pictures is a, is a larger project, and this is a, a cycle of paintings within that project. Sea uh, pictures is a project that's about portraiture and, uh, and what it is to paint a portrait. And so it's, it's, it's entirely based in painting and uh, the history of doing so. And, uh, and Desert Octave continues uh, that series whilst being its own self-contained uh, cycle of work. I work in cycles, and so each time I make an exhibition, I make the work specifically for that exhibition. So so this this section of the work, did it... Did you do it because you were coming to Dubai, or did you move? Did you put it in Dubai because you're working on the desert, or how is, or is the desert accidental? It's funny how things tend to coincide, uh, because I happen to be reading uh, a book by T. E. Lawrence called Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is uh, all about the Arabian quadrangle, mm-hmm. and uh, at the same time, uh, we talked about putting the show together here, and so I did. I was thinking about the desert, and uh, but it all happened at the same time, and I wanted to make a show about the desert for Dubai. Fantastic. Um, at the same time, I'd never been to the desert, and I think it's important to think about what happens when experience is mediated, uh, and in this case, all of my knowledge of the desert was mediated experience. I'd never been. Have you had a chance to go now? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. I went yesterday for the first time. Okay, and the first time in any desert or this particular desert? Well, the first time in a... Proper desert. A, a desert. <laughs> desert. Okay. The kind of desert, you know, with the dunes. And, and did the your ideas of desert change? Yes. Actually, yes. Because uh, the desert is... The physicality of a desert okay. is something you can't really describe. And would the, you think now that you know, would, would your work have changed slightly? It would, would have changed enormously because I think uh, part of the color in the show came from imagining mm-hmm. uh, what color could be like in the desert. And, uh, and light is entirely different from how I had imagined it. From, from what I read, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the older work uh, was based on the colors of the, the bedside or sea, whatever they call it, the riverbed, riverbank sides. Mississippi? 
Uh, no, these are the actual materials that I'm using. Okay. So uh, when I make these pictures, uh, you know, material has great meaning, and uh, and I arrange different materials together, uh, almost to create an allegory, an allegory about time, or the way we would have mm -hmm. with uh, in Italy in the 16th century by combining specific symbols, we could speak about different concepts, uh, but one would have to know what those symbols meant. Uh, in this case, I'm using uh, bone dust, I'm using marble, pulver, and, uh, and sand from the Sahara that I was able to get uh, in France. And, uh, and when I say bone dust or bone ash, you immediately have an idea that is given to you by the material itself. So I combine these materials and then work with them. The earlier work I was using uh, a substance called diatomaceous earth and uh, this is from microscopic shells that have for many many years been uh, deposited on the banks of the Mississippi and, uh, and I liked this notion of geological time very large geological time and how that compares to the time of one life uh, of one person. Okay, so, so I guess the main difference between the, the sea uh, work and the desert work is the change of material, which you've switched around from that into the sand, which is, I guess is forever eternal rather than, uh, I guess, within the, than what you were talking about with the shells. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but one thing, kind of, what you said about how uh, your work would be different, but I think, in my, in my personal sense, that having the work right now based on your imaginary desert stance kind of works a little bit with, with what you were kind of talking before about how when you do portraits it's, it's more about the, um, the the human trace rather than the likeness mm -hmm. and, yes. and this one it's not about the desert the actual desert but the likeness of the desert no, not the likeness of it but the trace of its if it's not poetic or romantic but it's kind of its notions in your, in your, in your head mm. so in a way it's a portrait of an imaginary desert but it's still your desert Does that make sense? It does make sense to me because basically uh, the desert that I'm imagining mm -hmm. is a desert that was given to me as a memory of another person who came here as a foreigner mm -hmm. to see. And, uh, and that's, all, that's what we're dealing with when we make marks. We make marks and those marks create drawing or writing and the purpose being is that they're a record. They're a record of what we see and what we think. And, uh, and so when I read the record of the experience of one person of the desert, I have some notion of it. And it's not my notion, but it is a notion. And so I'm able to make that correspond with my project of portraiture that has to do with uh, trying to represent man, not, as you said, by image, but by mark and by measure. Uh, this is... A, deeply uh, rooted in iconoclastic tradition and uh, and also rooted in my personal uh, studies in uh, in museum collections I don't know what iconoclastic thingy means, can you please explain it to me? Yes uh, basically iconoclasm 
comes from uh, well the Semitic religions. Okay. Uh, at the base, uh, at the beginning, are iconoclastic. Uh, Islam continues to be iconoclastic. Uh, Judaism continues to be iconoclastic, and Christianity changed at one point. And after the schism, the East remained iconoclastic at a certain time, and then became icononodulist, and the West became icononodulist. What that means is that painting figures, or the figure of God, or the image of God, uh, was acceptable in the Catholic Church uh, through uh, the painting of the Christ and things like this. This is, a, this is an acceptable practice. Whereas in Islam and Judaism, uh, there's, it's, you cannot have an image of a prophet, you cannot have an image of, uh, of God. And, uh, and this iconoclastic practice, for me, is very interesting because it, it puts emphasis on the word. And so the written tradition becomes very important. Okay. And uh, the word is so important because, as we were discussing, the word and mark-making are quite related and have to do with history, have to do with human memory and the memory of civilization. We, we have this also through image and through painting of likenesses or photography or these kinds of things. But I think that there's a certain power to, uh, to the iconoclastic approach to thinking about uh, larger things, uh, such as man's relationship to nature or man's relationship to uh, God or uh, nature and God and their uh, perhaps interchangeable relationship and things like this uh, throughout history, Western history. Okay, so, so, so in, in a sense of, 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 I understood what you're kind of referring to in comparison of your work here and, and the likeness and such, but you still, I'm not sure if you still do practice photography and video. I have a very strange relationship okay. with photography and, uh, and, and film or video. I don't, um, I don't really use it in my work. Uh, I do like to take film uh, photography. I, I like to use film photography as a kind of hobby. Uh, as a record of my travels, I suppose, but it's, it's for personal use every once in a while. It, it seeps into the work, but I, I do not typically use it. And the reason being is that, uh, and as you can see in the pictures that are painted here, what I want to create for the viewer is an experience. I don't want to represent something for the viewer that will remind them of an experience they may have. I want to provide a new experience. Uh, the sublime is something that I'm interested in, but I know it's something that cannot be represented. I can't take a photograph of a really fantastic, deeply, uh, almost frightening landscape and show it to you and, and provide you with the same sentiment. You're never going to feel what it feels like to be in that place and see the, the depth of that nature, the power of it. Uh, however, what I'm trying to get at in these paintings is direct experience, is to provide direct experience. The, the, the paintings are a dynamic field. They change while you look at them. They change according to the way the light changes around you over time. Uh, I called them sea pictures because I wanted you to be able to sit and look at them the way you can sit and look at the ocean. As the light changes, as the movement of the ocean changes, you're never bored looking at the ocean. You're at peace. You're at, completely at peace looking at it. And this is what I wanted to create in these in these paintings. And with this kind of overall, I guess, landscape, or whether it's the uh, with sea pictures or desert octave, does does that translate? I mean, you have a very defined cut 
mm. in, in your paintings, as well as a top and a bottom border, mm. which can look at, at, at a first glance like a, like a book. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, you keep looking at it, it is a framed landscape, possibly, or a reflection of a landscape unto mm -hmm. itself, either from you know, the mirage or a reflection, whatever it is. Is that something that is that just my own seeing into it, or is it something that you worked on, or what, what is it that we're looking at? Well, it's all of those things, absolutely. Okay. Um, it's all of those things, and I want the, the meaning or the experience of the piece to be open. Uh, that's part of it, because... I think over uh, over the years and doing the research for this project, one thing that I've noticed is that when an art object is at its most powerful, it's because it's mirroring it, the viewer. It's, it's providing for the viewer a way to see him or herself in the object. And what I mean is that uh, when, when you look at a piece of art or an art object that you love, okay. you're looking at something that reminds you about something that you like about yourself much more than about the work. Ooh. So, for example, the horizon. People like to talk about the horizon line in the work. There's always a horizon line in my work, and it's because the horizon, if you're on the sea, if you're on a ship on the sea, the horizon is the only thing that is fixed or seemingly fixed mm -hmm. and seemingly finite. And so it's a reflection of your finitude as, as a person. You have a beginning and an end, and the horizon seems to as well. It provides a beginning and end for the sea and for the sky. And so you have a certain relationship to it. And so there's a reflection there, a mirroring. And the sea and the sky mirrors itself. So it's really, there are a lot of mirrors going on. And like you say about the mirage, like there's, there really is all these different levels of reflection in the piece. And, uh, and they have to do with facing something that is, uh, that is much larger than oneself and then also facing oneself within that. Okay, I, I guess you haven't had the chance to drive in on the large the highways of Dubai at a certain time where the black tile becomes really reflective as well. That can be something that to look into. But going back into more deep and meaningful kind of conversations, um, you as, a, as, as, a, as an artist, or you as you, and you always, from, from what I've read before, um, language and the philosophy of, of kind of communication with the language is what interests you. So is that your kind of main drive as an artist to, to communicate that? What, what do you want to share with the world that is your conceptual legacy? Or is that far too deep for this early morning? Well, basically, uh, my interest in language and in philosophy had to do with uh, just trying to understand the world around me. And that's why I got into art in the first place. Was It was a way for me to continue to learn about things and go to places and, and learn about the places and, and, and to study wildly different fields mm -hmm. and do uh, many different kinds of research. Art allows that, especially in our time. Uh, so that's one thing. My interest... my more specific interest in, in the language studies and uh, I moved into more specific studies of, of semiology after that uh, came from the idea that uh, the, the relationship between language and the world uh, is extraordinarily important and uh, much of 20th century thought is based on trying to establish uh, an understanding of that importance and uh, what I began to take out of it was that language in and of itself had a very specific visual impact and it had great meaning even if it wasn't 
functioning the way it's supposed to function. What I mean is that uh, if one sees writing but can't understand the language, it still communicates something about humanity. It still communicates something even more specific than something so global sometimes. Uh, I don't have a specific example in front of me. I could speak more clearly about it. But what I mean is that you don't necessarily need to understand the content for the vehicle itself to have meaning. But does, it, does, it, does it add to the value the more you know? Or not necessarily? I think typically we like to contextualize things. And, uh, and this is also why the materials I use in my work are very specific, because they have their own inherent meaning. Uh, and that meaning is changing. Uh, and that meaning is different for different people in different places. Uh, but there's, there is meaning to those materials. I don't, uh, I don't paint gold. I use gold. I don't, and it doesn't look gold, but it's in there. I don't, uh, I don't paint a, a pile of, of dust, but I use a pile of dust. And I don't paint the desert, but the traces of the desert, the material of the desert, are in the work. And language is not, I'm not representing language, I'm actually writing. It's actually the trace of one person writing from the top to the bottom of a format that is the size of a person. And we have all of these relationships that are real relationships with each other, as opposed to some sort of simulacral or sign-based relationship. So would each, each of your paintings have a different writing method or a different story inside it for you rather than for us? I, uh, when I write these, mm-hmm. which is the final step in the, in the painting, uh, when I do the writing, it's always, of course, different. Uh, it, 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 sometimes it's analytical and it has to do with what I'm doing in that moment. Sometimes it's uh, creative writing. Sometimes it's uh, more automatic. Sometimes it's a bit more therapeutic. Uh, but it's always different. And uh, occasionally, uh, I, I think to myself, boy, it would be really nice to retain that because that was a nice thought. <laughs> but I am I'm very actively thinking. And then it, part of the, the, the importance of the work is that that's, it's all lost afterwards. Yeah, because you can't really read you can, it. I can't read it myself. So when I see the pieces afterwards, they're just these changing dynamic fields, these kind of like ghosts of uh, a day where I sat. It usually takes me about a day from morning to night to write uh, one layer of writing from top to bottom. But then what, what would the difference be between your smaller studies and your larger mm-hmm. pieces? The larger pieces are at human scale. Uh-huh. And for me, they're the core of the, of the series. Uh, the smaller pieces... Now that I'm using more and more color, mm-hmm. which is much more an intuitive issue, uh, it's much more uh, something that is outside of my power to uh, define clearly or to intellectualize or to basically ruin. <laughs> um, the small pieces allow me to do much more experimentation because there's a, the color in the large pieces functions the way it does has the luminosity it does because it takes an extraordinary amount of time to spread it out and it's very laborious it's very Mm -hmm. physical in the smaller pieces I can do more with color because it's not as laborious they're a smaller surface 
and, uh, and so they have a different nature and they're a bit more uh, experimental in that way and they have a, they're more like the kind of intimacy of reading a book as opposed to the standoff of dancing I dance okay. with the larger piece and so does the spectator these smaller pieces I always say there's three scales in, in art making and probably in anything there's your scale human scale there is smaller and there is larger in the larger scale we inhabit the work right you walk into a Richard Serra if it's our scale uh, well there's Richard Serra's that are on human scales as well for that matter if it's if it's your scale you you dance with the piece if maybe you dance around a Donald Judge or something like that and uh, and if it's smaller then we englobe the piece not just physically but also with our minds it seems to, to, to become an object of contemplation or, uh, of, or of admiration like, like, a, like a jewel uh, more than it is uh, a physical interaction so then with, with the stories that you write in large format the stories you write in tiny format with those change like at least what type of thing you say the, no, the nature of the writing is so diverse that I never know uh, really what it's going to be about okay. until I sit down and do it. And there's a great amount of liberty in that because initially I wanted to be a writer. Uh, I wanted to be, uh, you know, I wrote a lot of poetry. I, want, I, was, I wrote uh, some books and uh, some screenplays and things, and I, I, I got rid of all of it. It was never quite right, and I was always so conscious of what was being written that I could never get it all to come together correctly. And it's much more liberating for me now to find this form in which I can do much more with writing and not ever have the fear <laughs> of it coming together into a product that I know in a week or two I'll think is terrible. Um, so Very healthy way. It's that. completely, um, on, on a personal level, it's, 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 it's extremely... Um, gratifying for sure well well thank you for taking the time out and, and, and talking to me um, is there anything you want to end with I think uh, I think that's all right let's uh, let's go ahead and talk to, to Kamiar brilliant yes yeah, so now we're going to continue our conversation by asking Kamiar Malki a couple of questions he curated the uh, the show which I mentioned earlier is called desert octave from the 28th of October to the 4th of December here at Cousteau gallery Hello, Kamiar. Hello. Thank you for having me as well. No, we thank you for uh, for introducing uh, Dubai to, to Richard. His work's quite interesting. It's not very common that we get, uh, I guess, minimal philosophical work here. Uh, when we do, it's always from the Eastern point of view. So it's it's fun seeing it from a, mm -hmm. a Western Western perspective. So to start off, since we're talking about Eastern and Western philosophy, how did you end up? curating work for Richard? Is it a shared philosophical interest? Well, I'm a collector first and foremost, so I, I collect young emerging artists uh, from a very early age. When I say that, I mean uh, straight out of college uh, up until the first group and, uh, and um, a solo show in a gallery. So when I met Richard, the way we met and the way I saw his original work uh, was by pure coincidence and I fell in love with it and as you say the, the actual mix of East versus West, I'm Iranian originally so I come from this background but I personally don't collect that much Iranian art or Middle Eastern art so 
curating it here with that language expression, with the way, as you say, it is minimalist, it is the way that Dubai does collect. I felt that Dubai would be a fantastic place to, to bring Richard to and bring him over here. So, um, so as, a, from, uh, as a difference between a collector and a curator, how much of the input have you placed on the show specifically? There, there is, I mean, first and foremost, the relationship we have, I really do give the artist his creative freedom to come up with the works. Um, I think one of the larger impacts I've had in the development of the work was that when we first looked at Hashtag Abstract, the very first show that uh, Richard was in, we were working more with um, monotone colors. It was really more about the, the seascape. It was more about the script. It was more about the writing. Well, you know, I always felt that these works could have a bit of color inside it. And I really tried to test him on, on one original work, which, which uh, uh, he made for my own collection. Okay. And uh, it worked out stunningly. And, and this is where the continuation de developed, where we then said, okay, why don't we try one show on just working with colors? And that's where primary colors happened uh, only a couple months ago. And um, yeah, and then this, and then hopefully there'll be many more projects that we're going to work together. So then, if we're since work, working on language and and, and and words, then would wouldn't you say this is more of a kind of old school patronage support development rather than a uh, the art world curatorial? Yeah, no, no, type? sure. I mean, as I say, this is mm -hmm. why I I would consider calling myself more of a collector than a curator. I, I think we got, or I got very lucky with the, with the first show I curated, which got a lot of international exposure. And coming from a philanthropic background, the way my parents have supported the, the art and the artists and continue to do so, yes, I, I always feel a nurturing touch towards artists. And whether it is called curatorial management or artist development, that is something which I'm very passionate about and continue to do with other artists. But you know, because we've become such good friends as well as, you know, uh, let's say teammates yeah. in this in this uh, project, uh, you know, I want to develop things further with Richard as well. And I don't. I'm not. I don't sure. If, I'm not sure if Richard is your only kind of supporter of the artist. Richard, close your ears. <laughs> How do you deal with, with with other artists, and what's what's the dif what's the differences between them? Well, the beauty of being a collector is, I think, you have uh, more of a stronger point than just when you're a curator, because at the end of the day, when you're a collector, artist wants to please the collector mm -hmm. as well. There, there'll be more of an open dialogue rather than diva tendencies or okay. this my way or highway kind of <laughs> approach. Um, because at the end of the day, the collector has a different PowerPoint True. within the art world. And this is why this works. And I, I was trying to really go into that management agenting without being a gallery, because I don't mm. think I, I would want to be a gallerist. And these guys are doing such a fantastic job on their own that, uh, you know, uh, but I wanted to make a difference in the art world. And by curating gifted artists, you know, there's so many talented artists out there that don't have an opportunity to voice their talents, you know, such as Richard. And, uh, you know, 
with our connections, with my connections, I, I want to give them the opportunity to showcase this talent. You know. No, I think it's always fair when when somebody does have a an artist or, their, or a collection of artists that they like to, to help push them, which is why I did mention the, the term patronage because that's yeah. how it was and how I, I think it is a, a certain way for for collectors to, to really support and and uh, kind of move art forward, especially mm. when um, when not everybody can see everything at the same time. It is somebody pre-selecting something mm -hmm. for you. So again, thank you, uh, Camille, for for talking to me and and Richard for for also uh, having the time to, to, to go through the work. And for everyone listening, the show is on uh, till the 4th of December at Cousteau Gallery here at Circal Avenue. And uh, it's uh, Richard Hoagland, Desert Octave, curated by Kamiar Maliki. Thank you very much, and talk to you soon.